Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and welcome to a special edition of Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. And I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Well, this month is National Fair Housing Month. I don't know if you guys are familiar with the Fair Housing Act, and that was passed in 1968. And we're going to be talking about that. We're going to be talking about the gap that has happened between African Americans and everybody else in terms of home ownership and how can you purchase a home and, you know, what do you need to purchase a home and why couldn't you purchase homes in certain places? Uh, you might have heard the ter- term redlining. Um, I'm sure people thought that was fake, but they actually have documents that had red lines on them. Um, so I hope that you'll tune in and share this information with friends. I have some great guests uh, tonight. Lydia Pope, she is the president-elect of the National Association of real estate brokers. Um, she has her own firm, the real estate industry. For She's been in the industry for, for several years, uh, since 1995. She's the owner of E&D Realty and Investment Company Incorporated, E&D Realty Property Management, and New Era Real Estate Group uh, Incorporated. She obtained her MBE and SBE, DBE and WBE. She has all these certificates, so she's very knowledgeable. And I think we have another guest. Let's see if this is him. Dr. Rainier, is this Hello. you? Hello. Yes, Hi. this is me. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for calling in tonight. Of course. Thank you for having me. Well, and Dr. Rainier, for you guys who don't know, Vincent Rainier, he's an associate professor at the University of Pennsylvania and the faculty director of the Housing Initiative at Penn. His research focuses on urban economics, housing economics, and housing policy, Fair Housing and Community Development. Welcome, welcome, and welcome, you guys. A wealth of knowledge here tonight. Again, thank you, because I know this is kind of like dinner time, but I appreciate you taking the time. It's so important that people learn about housing. I was just speaking with Ms. Pope earlier about how it's a wealth-building opportunity. I want to start with Dr. Rainier, though. Can you tell us a little bit about the Fair Housing Act? Some people may not be aware of what it is and who is protected by the Fair Housing Act. Yeah, so the Fair Housing Act was passed in 1968, and it's meant to protect people from discrimination when they're renting or buying a home, getting a mortgage, seeking housing assistance, or doing other housing-related activities. Uh, and so the groups covered by it, uh, there's, they, they call them protected classes. So the Fair Housing Act prohibits discrimination in housing because of someone's race, uh, color, national origin, religion, sex, family status, uh, and disability status. Uh, And so what this meant to be is essentially an act that creates a legal mechanism when someone does uh, uh, suffer from discrimination in the market to have legal recourse to actually um, uh, to to, to sue an owner uh, and and things along those lines uh, to, to kind of bar discrimination from happening to them. 
Now, Lydia, why was your organization created, and, and how is that connected in any way with the Fair Housing Act? Thank you, and good evening, everyone. The National Association of Real Estate Brokers was formed in 1947, and our focus was basically to secure the right of equal housing opportunity. We were the advocates, and our goal was to make sure not just the equal housing opportunity regardless of their race, creed, or color, but we also advocated for legislation. We supported all of the legal actions in regards to, 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 to ensure that fair housing, sustainable home ownership, the access to credit for black Americans are, 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 are there. And with the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, as we're promoting uh, within our organization, is the also the access to business opportunities for black real estate professionals. At one time, we were not allowed to sell real estate with the National Association of Realtors. And in 1947, NARAB was formed. You know, when you talk about the organization, NARAB is premier organization, and we're the champions of the fair housing. We supported that. We're supporting the AFFH. And our goal is to make sure that we serve the unserved and underserved. Wow, that's wonderful. And, and that's why I wanted to have you on, just to provide resources for people. Uh, Dr. Rania, I mentioned earlier about this issue of redlining. Can you explain what that is and, and, and what, that, what that meant for um, African-Americans, people of color? Yeah, so redlining um, is, is, a, is a really interesting phenomenon. So we, we should acknowledge that, Racial discrimination has uh, persisted uh, in our country uh, for, for a very long time now. But in, uh, and you can easily argue since its inception, right, with who can actually own property, who can own land, all of those things. Um, what redlining was, was in the 1930s, essentially the Homeowners Loan Corporation uh, created a series of maps. Um, and in these maps, they essentially drew, as you said in the introduction before, a series of red lines where uh, they color-coded different segments of the map and essentially different neighborhoods. And they were color-coded based explicitly on race and ethnicity uh, and sometimes even religion, right? And so what those maps did was they served as markers for lenders to essentially see certain areas as risky and less areas as less risky. Uh, and now this wasn't based on any actual objective measure of risk. It was based on purely racist practices. And what this meant in reality is that uh, lending would happen in the areas that were deemed more desirable, which is essentially the white neighborhoods, right? Uh, and mm -hmm. lending practices, uh, lending would either be more costly or not happen at all uh, in, the, in, the, in the redlined areas, right? Um, and so this is significant because what it did is, is essentially formalized the discrimination that was already existing in housing markets in a really very clear way, right? And what it did in many ways, found by Jacob Faber and other researchers, is that it really amplified segregation and really amplified children access to credit and everything else that essentially persists to this day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, Ms. Pope, what is the, do you know the current rate of black home ownership in the United States? Yes, the rate as of the fourth quarter of 2020 is 40.1. You know, and it's in also it's in comparison to the non-Hispanic white home ownership rate, which is 70.5, 74.5. You know, we're looking for the uh, the new rates, which will come out the first quarter of 2021, and we're hoping that'll be released next week with the Census Bureau. But as we can see, the gaps are still there; it hasn't changed, and our goal is to increase those home ownership rates. 
Has anything in COVID, Ms. Pope, happened? Has it made it worse, do you think, since maybe 2019 or earlier? Well, what happened in COVID, the challenge with the COVID is within the, within the real estate industry, you know, it's been very difficult. Although the rates are low, the challenge has been, number one, is still the access to credit. We're still having challenges with the disparities as it comes to the appraisal, and that hasn't changed. So although COVID has taken its place, we still have those disparities. We still have the unfair lending practices. We still have the rental discrimination that are still today and within the neighborhoods. And lastly, we still have the systematic racism and home buying process for blacks. And so that's the reason why the National Association of Real Estate Brokers' goal is to fight and focus on the legislation that will form, number one, to assure that all Americans, black or white, have a right to form, actually have a right to purchase a home. But secondly, that we're not discriminated against in the home buying process. The real estate market has been great, but in the African-American community, you can't, you can't buy a home because the appraisers are too low. And that's our challenge. So we're still fighting the same fight, although they say that the real estate market is booming. We're still having challenges in the African-American community. Uh, Dr. Rainer, um, one, one, yeah. Sorry, can I just add one important point to that? And that, that's highlighting mm-hmm. there is that the Fair Housing Act is, is an is a absolutely significant and important piece of legislation. But what you see is racist practices essentially morph over time, right? And so Professor Kianga Yamahata-Taylor, yeah. Race for Profit, in her book kind of shows this very well, which is that the fact that uh, racial discrimination is, has been functioning in our housing markets, like I said, and we had the Hope Maps, and things like the Fair Housing Act actually make that illegal, right? But it doesn't mean it doesn't just transform and formalize in another way through financial products and markets. Yes, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, let me ask you, Dr. Rainia, I was reading about this issue of discriminatory advertising in relation to housing. Could you talk about that a little bit, um, what that specifically means? Yeah, I mean, so I'm not a specialist totally in this topic, but there definitely is kind of the, the concern of steering uh, people towards certain places, but also in many settings, even in advertisements for certain rental units and things like that, uh, saying certain people can't apply, right? So in theory, these, these things are actually uh, prohibited by law, right, an explicit declaration that certain groups or certain people can't apply. The challenge generally with all of this is it's really difficult to enforce. It's really difficult mm-hmm. to enforce and catch and monitor every form of discrimination that's going on uh, across the country, right? We often rely on people being discriminated against to then report that discrimination and prove it was the case. So it essentially puts the burden on the person experiencing that discrimination, right? Um, And so what it points to is this reality that things like the Fair Housing Act are really important, that it gives the legal mechanism and recourse, but we still have to actually go beyond that, right? And that's where this this whole affirmatively furthering fair housing mandate that happened under the Obama administration is now being reinvigorated under the Biden administration uh, and was totally decimated under the Trump administration for horrible reasons. Um, but what that does is it acknowledges the fact that we this enforcement mechanism against discrimination is nice, but it's not enough. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, uh, Ms. Pope, how much money do you need to have, like how much should you put down? You always hear this 15%, 20%, 10%. What, how much money should a person have in order to put, you know, put down on a house, a down payment? So when it comes to down payment for first-time home buyers or home buyers in general, 
If you go on SHA, it's 3.5%. Conventional, again, it's 5%, but it all depends on the credit scoring. That's where we fall into the gap of challenges with the credit scoring model because the credit scoring, number one, it knocks folks out of buying a home. But even with the down payment, the disparities that we're having, the challenge is what type of down payment is available, how can they get access to that, and then lastly, can they qualify for the down payment assistance? Some are based on the areas, some are based on demographics, but most of all, it's really based on the credit. And when African Americans do not have the access to credit or the credit scores are where they are, it makes it very difficult to be able to purchase a home with a down payment. Now, there are some down payment programs that the National Association of Real Estate Brokers are encouraging. We're working with legislation in regards to the Down Payment Act, and our goal is to provide those type of services to the communities that we're serving and to assure that our membership within the organization are, 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 are bringing these programs to the communities that they serve. But although the down payments are low, there's still some challenge when it comes to home ownership. Uh, Dr. Rania, what is Section 8 housing, and how does somebody uh, um, become eligible for that type of housing? Yeah, so Section 8 housing is on the rental side, and what it is is a form of federal rental assistance. But essentially, if you're offered this voucher, um, you can go on the private market and try to find an owner who will accept the voucher, and then you can lease a unit with this voucher. And what the voucher does is it basically makes the owner enter an agreement with HUD um, or the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development where the tenant will spend no more than 30% of their income on housing, and then HUD will pay the difference between that 30% payment and essentially the fair market rent for that unit. So what it's meant to do is essentially reduce or eliminate the housing cost burden for renters who can access the voucher. Now, that said, you know, there's a lot of research that very much shows that Section 8 vouchers are vastly undersupplied, right? For every one household receiving it, there's an additional three who qualify and do not. And so what you see is that many administering agencies rely on things like lotteries uh, to actually offer these vouchers. Uh, they're offering vouchers once a past recipient actually stops using it. The Biden administration just announced a temporary increase in some vouchers over the next 10 years, which is the first increase in some time. Uh, but that said, they're definitely in short supply. So you get a scenario like, say, in the city of Los Angeles, where in 2016, for the first time, they opened their voucher lottery wait list in a very long time. Um, they ran a lottery. Uh, 550,000 plus households were qualified for it. 170,000 households applied. 20,000 were then randomly selected through a lottery and put on a waiting list. And of those, they're going through about 2,000 per year. Even though so lucky mm. to actually win that voucher lottery then, often still face a lot of challenges using the voucher on the private market. And particularly black households, households with kids and elderly households have the highest rates of being offered a voucher and then still not being able to use it. And so what you see is the challenges of this very important subsidy, both through undersupply, but often the difficulties households face in, in using it. And in my own research, kind of the reality that, you know, it doesn't protect people from discrimination. And if anything, it could also expose them to the source of income discrimination, where the source of income is essentially the voucher itself that's going to pay the rent. Wow. You know, I remember when I was younger uh, and I just had my daughter and some people were like, oh, you know, you should get Section 8, you know, you, you should be okay for that. And I was like, do you know how long you got to wait on the list 
to 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 get mm-hmm. into the like like people had no idea like somehow they think that it's just like a plethora of housing available and mm-hmm. you know, this is um, in relation to like, the issues of homelessness and things like that like why people are homeless well why can't they get Section Eight or they don't realize all the hoops and things that are and also the issue that there aren't any of enough enough you know vouchers as you said to give out. And people are doing things like lottery, and then, like, what, 2,000 people out of all those people are going to get housing, and then they're still on a waiting list? So it's it's not a good situation, and I don't think people are really knowledgeable. And that's why I wanted to have the show tonight about that. Miss um, Pope, I yeah. want to talk to you about how do, you, how do you know what house is the right house for you in terms of the amount of money, um, location? All these things can be overwhelming sometimes. Maybe, say, a new family with kids. How do you know that this is the right house for you? Well, thank you, Joyce. So the first thing when a person is interested in buying a home is that they want to educate themselves. That's always the number one. Attending a lot of the HUD-approved workshops, the home buyer workshop, number one, it educates them and informs the consumers not just about their rights and how to recognize and, and, and report possible discrimination, but also it's a learning tool that they'll be able to walk from plan A to plan B is how do I get to this step. The second thing, once they've been educated, is that you want to seek a housing counselor, someone who's going to, who's HUD approved, they're on the HUD.gov website, who will walk you through this home buying process. A lot of times, first-time home buyers, they don't know what they don't know. So it's up to the expertise in the business to, to walk them through this avenue to walk them through so they will understand what does it take to buy a home, how much money do I have. Because what a housing counselor would do is, number one, they will run your credit. They'll work on your credit. They'll see what you need to do to become sustainable and also look Mm -hmm. at the qualifying um, efforts before you get to the lender. That way, number one, your credit's not being pulled many times by the lender. Secondly, it's allowing you to be able to have choices. Anyone, no matter what race, color, religion you are, should be able to buy a home. Now, the thing is, is that have you done your research? And that's the fourth part of that is doing your research. Before you accept any lenders, you want to shop around for products and services, but you want to know how to do it. That's why you have a housing counselor. What I typically say, I say it's like going to court without an attorney. You need someone to Mm. represent you that's going to help you, that's going to advocate for you and walk those steps. And lastly, you want options. You should be able to have options no matter what you're doing, and you want to make sure you make good decisions. So sometimes buying a home may not be the right thing right now, but the goal is, my rule is you do it once and you do it right. So you take your time, you walk through these steps, you educate yourself, you do the research, and make sure that you have options. Now, Dr. Rania, I read an article you wrote about evictions and fair housing. Can you tell the audience a little bit what's the, where's the connection there and, and how, they, um, how, how the fair housing impacts or is it related to evictions? Yeah, no. So we, so we, thank you. We, we know that um, from from multiple studies now that eviction disproportionately affects uh, black households, and and through multiple mechanisms, not the least of which is also labor market discrimination that exposes black households to uh, more uh, uh, income volatility due to uh, racial discrimination in in hiring, in in wages, and things along those lines, right? Uh, and so we know that eviction disproportionately affects um, uh, black households uh, and, and is particularly dominant in low-income neighborhoods, right? Uh, and, and, and the eviction itself and repeat filings could have uh, completely detrimental effects on households, their mental health, their ability to find future housing, um, the, the impact on their kids and the kids' well-being and their mental health, 
all these kinds of things. And so what you see is, you know, the discrimination that we've kind of talked about quite a bit here on in the housing market broadly then plays out specifically when we think of where we're seeing evictions, right, um, and where mm-hmm. we're seeing these power dynamics playing out, where we're seeing this discrimination play out uh, and, and formalizes in, you know, the, the clear uh, research that shows that black households are being disproportionately affected by eviction. And so fair housing uh, clearly connects to the topic of eviction, and the law is, is clearly an important law to help protect people from racial discrimination in accessing housing. But when we think of this disproportionate effect on the eviction side, which is essentially then the loss of housing, this is where it comes back to what I was talking about before, which is the idea of affirmatively furthering fair housing, acknowledging that discrimination in housing affects you on the front end, affects you on the back end, affects you in the middle, right? And so if we really want to meaningfully address this, we need to act, think of this proactively and acknowledge it, how it affects people throughout their whole housing search, housing living, uh, and potentially even housing stability uh, aspects of, of, of their interaction with housing markets. You know, um, I was talking right before the show started with Ms. Pope. We were talking actually about the issue of land and owning mm-hmm. land and, and that um, and then owning a house or building a house or a farm or whatever you want to do on that land. Uh, I had told her I read an article about uh, a California family. They had owned a beach, but it was taken by eminent mm-hmm. domain. But now mm-hmm. um, they are in the process of actually going to be getting that back. And hopefully once everything goes through in court, it'll be I mean, a landmark. It'll be a huge door open for many African-American families who may be able to get land that was taken from them due to eminent domain or other reasons such as racial reasons. Um, get it back um, into their their families. Ms. Pope, just talk to us about. Can I just? That's a really powerful yeah. point because it it, it it points to the exclusion that systemically happened over time of black households mm-hmm. from financial products and housing markets, but then also the extraction that happened at the same time of wealth and land and property and things along those lines, right? And so the combination yes. of both the exclusion and the extraction compounds over time and essentially makes it a scenario where by virtue of being white, you're more likely to have owned something that appreciated over time that you could pass down across generations that formalizes in the form of a down payment that formalizes in the form of leverage to open private businesses yeah. uh, and that formalizes in kind of broader economies of neighborhoods and cities and things like that. Yeah, and, definitely. And, 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 and that's why I wanted to bring it up. Go ahead, Ms. Pope. I was going to say to Vince's point, um, he's absolutely right. You know, when it comes to generational wealth, you know, it's just so important. That's when you go back to the education mode, um, educating our African-Americans within the community about owning land, about keeping land, and then how do you maintain your land. These are pieces that as you walk through the home buyer workshops, as you go through these, 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 these educational pieces, which are free, so I must, I must mention that, these are free to the public to sit down and know your rights but also to get educated so that you can have this generational wealth that will go from one person to the next and keep that down the line, understanding the importance of owning land. And not, not just that, also understanding the importance of passing that on throughout the legacy. So, so I totally agree with you, Vincent, that that was a great analysis. Uh, Vincent, I want to ask you, do you, are you aware of anything that's going to be happening in the future because of the Biden administration dealing with rent relief? Because, you know, that was a big help for a lot of people. And and other countries, they're doing a a lot of things for for their citizens in order to help them during this COVID time. And our government, uh, past government, was not doing such. Are you aware of anything coming up or any 
thing happening around the issue of rent relief in the future? Oh, absolutely. So I've actually been actively working with cities and states across the country to help them establish and, and, and evaluate some of their rent relief programs. And, uh, and in that, um, fortunately, uh, in the past two rounds of stimulus funding or, or of appropriations, essentially not appropriations, of, of bills rather, there's been significant support for rent relief as a portion of that. And so what we're seeing now is that states and cities and some counties uh, are essentially starting to develop and deploy rent relief programs. Some did that uh, in a smaller capacity uh, previously, starting kind of in about May through December of 2020. There was initially funding through the CARES Act. Uh, that funding mm-hmm. was vastly insufficient uh, given the level of need that we're seeing. Uh, and so what you saw is kind of significant infusions uh, through sub- two subsequent bills uh, the most recent of which is the most significant, which essentially uh, gives states and municipalities a lot more resources to develop rent relief programs that are helping to pay people's arrears, uh, but also offering some money to future rent as well. So I strongly encourage everyone uh, to definitely, you know, look that up because uh, there are, you know, every state has a program. Uh, well, not every state has a program, but every state has an allocation, right? Uh, so either the state has it or your county has it or your city has it, and this is a significant resource. And I know one of the challenges now is trying to get the dollars out the door fast enough, right? We often mm-hmm. want government to do stuff right away, but essentially what we've done is we've underfunded uh, housing for years. And now all of a sudden in this pandemic, uh, fortunately they're getting the resources, but essentially they have to develop whole new programs and deploy them as quickly as possible to people facing a lot of dire trade-offs. In one of my surveys, we found that in the city of Los Angeles, uh, 28% of the 25,000 people who responded to our survey said that they forewent any form of medical care or a doctor's visit in the last year in order to pay for their housing and maintain their housing. These are dire trade-offs, and rent relief is a central mm-hmm. piece to acknowledging that households are facing those realities. It's amazing because I, I thought about I have my job, I have another job, and I was like, I'm so thankful for that. And thinking about, you know, when I was younger and I was like, oh, my gosh, what if this happened when I was younger and I got fired? You know, I got let go because the jobs I had, you know, like retail jobs and, and dealing with people and touching, you know. So I would have gotten fired and our stores would have been closed. And I, I, how would I would have paid my rent? And then the, the, the speed in which it was dispersed is an issue and by that point who knows i could have been homeless and then in the shelter and then that impacts the COVID situation it would make it worse so so it is a very important issue um i encourage people to go to their i guess their city websites their state websites to find out uh, one last question i want to ask uh, miss pope if you want to sell your house so you have a house but you want to sell it, what are like maybe three or four things you need to be aware of when you're trying to sell your house Okay, so the first thing you want to do when you're trying to sell your property is you want to first seek a realtors member. You know, our organization, the National Association of Real Estate Brokers, known as NARAB, at our NARAB.com website, our goal is we are trained professionals in the area of real estate. So when a person wants to list their home, you want to seek a realtors member, what we would do is we would go through the process, we'll walk through your property, we'll do an assessment of the property, to assure that you have an equitable and valuable property to put on the market. You know, we're reminded today of all the inequities that, uh, in housing that black Americans still confront today, such as discriminatory behavior and all the systematic racism, and not just the home buying, but it's also in the home selling. So as the realtors members are groomed and they're educated to focus on democracy and housing and serving the unserved, they're also trained to list properties as real estate practitioners. 
So the goal is to meet with your sellers, to walk them through that entire step like you do a buyer of listing your house and selling your property for the highest and best value, but also making sure that the property will appraise. And, again, in some instances, because of the because of disparities in appraisals in the black neighborhoods, it's been a very difficult process in the National Association. We're voicing our concerns to our legislators to assist in this change. Okay, one last question. I said that was the last one, but really quick. Uh, Dr. Rainier, what do you think about these tiny homes? They're little tiny homes that are being built. There's some for homeless. They have different cities. I've seen them for veterans. How do you think tiny homes can help housing uh, for African-Americans or people of color? I think what tiny homes acknowledge is that we need a broad set of housing solutions and options for for a broad set of needs, right? And so there's clearly sometimes a connection between construction costs and size and things along those lines. But I think to me what they're indicative of is the acknowledgement that for a long time now we've kind of bought into kind of a very prescribed model of what a house is and what the process is and what the product is. Oftentimes we've codified it in zoning itself. And so tiny homes to me are very emblematic of the acknowledgement that we need to be thinking beyond what we've, the way we've approached housing. We, we've defined housing, right? Housing wasn't yes. defined on its own. And so that means we could redefine it. We could redefine what it looks like, what it means, all those kinds of things. And so I think we need to be open to acknowledging that not only do people have different preferences, but they have different constraints, they have different price points, uh, and, 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 and suffer from different levels of exclusion, right? And so the tiny homes represent hopefully a move forward in acknowledging that, you know, um, we need to just think of many different ways of addressing many of the diverse sets of housing needs that people face. Wow, a lot, a lot of information. I hope that people will learn from this. And I thank you both, uh, Ms. Lydia Pope and also uh, Dr. Vincent Rainier, for coming on today. You guys had a wealth of information. I learned some stuff. And um, I was telling um, Ms. Pope that we could actually do a show on women in home ownership. And that could be a whole show unto itself. Um, so, so maybe we'll have you back on, Dr. Rainier, to talk about <laughs> women in, in home ownership. I, I don't know. <laughs> No, I'm happy to join you anytime. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you very Absolutely. much for coming on. I mean, a great wealth of information. And, and thank you, Ms. Pope, for coming on again and, and, and representing your organization uh, and sharing your wealth of information because I think, again, people just aren't aware of what they don't know. Like, they don't know they don't know, you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Have a wonderful evening, both of you, okay? Thank you so much. Okay, thank you. Well. Have nice a great evening, you, everyone. Folks. Take care. Okay, nice to meet you. Okay, well, bye-bye. And everyone have a great, great. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the show about fair housing and housing in general, and uh, you learn stuff. You can always listen to the beginning of the show. If you missed it, it will be archived. So don't fear, uh, give it a couple, like maybe about 15 minutes or so, and you can come back here. It'll be on iTunes, it'll be on Spotify, it'll be on Stitcher, it'll be on iHeart Music, uh, Amazon Music, uh, all over the place. So you can check out definitely the beginning and middle and end if you miss anything and share with friends. I hope you guys have a wonderful evening. Be safe. Make sure you get your vaccines if you can, uh, but still continue to wear your mask. And keep your distance, six feet distance. That's still important so that we can kind of get a hold of this COVID situation. All right. I will see you on Saturday. Okay, bye-bye. Adopt US Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A Teenager. Learning the Lingo. GOAT. G-O-A-T. Acronym. Stands for Greatest of All Time. 
As in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.